beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Holidays brings with it the time of year when we sit back to relax and reflect. Reflect on the year that's now gone, that's now come and gone, and ponder what new what a new work year may bring, the challenges and successes of a year gone by, and the new challenges and commitments of the year ahead. Work to be done and fun to be enjoyed. But really, brothers and sisters, what is the life we receive all good for? It's true that we lived the past year, but some of us have lost ones to death. There was profession of faith, but there was also those who broke with the church and the faith. There was catechism instruction. There was Bible study club. But there are also those who did not attend. Good financial deals were made and various of us prospered. But there were also those who lost much. There's been happiness and joy in families because of weddings and births and anniversaries. But there are also those in our midst who struggled much in the family with tension, illness and strife. In the course of the year, we've experienced what the preacher of Ecclesiastes has written. There's a time to be born, a time to die, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to gain and a time to lose. Chapter 3, verse 2. And really, beloved, what is it all good for? Why have we experienced birth and death, financial gain and loss, joy and strife, love and hate? Nothing happens by chance. All comes from the sovereign and gracious hand of our covenant God. But why? What have all the difficulties of the year been good for? Why have we been confronted both with health and handicap? Why were we confronted both with profession of faith and and with withdrawal from the church? Why all this? This morning, we'll listen to God's word as it comes to us in the concluding words of the preacher's book, Ecclesiastes. We can summarize the sermon with our text. The conclusion of the matter is, fear God and keep his commandments. And we'll look at firstly, what does the preacher mean with this conclusion? And secondly, why does the preacher come with this conclusion? So that's the meaning of the conclusion. And the source of the conclusion. The author of Ecclesiastes, commonly known as the preacher, has been busy writing his book. In the passage from which our text is taken, the preacher draws together conclusions that, he says, flow out of the material he has set forth in his book. What that conclusion is? Verse 13, fear God and keep his commandments. See here the preacher's sum of all the matters he's discussed in the book. Fear God and keep his commandments. We are familiar with these words. This morning we're reminded that we are to keep the Lord's commandments and somehow 
It's not something we enjoy being told. For one thing, it means that we can't do what we'd always like to do and that hardly agrees with our nature. More, we try to do what the Lord wants us to do but to a deep regret we discover time and again that no, we can't do what God wants of us. We fail just too often. Now, the preacher would tie up this whole book with that instruction we hear so often, keep God's commandments. We try so hard, but but we can't do it. And to be sure, instead of hearing his word, we'd rather hear the gospel. Fear God and keep his commandments, says the preacher. What might the preacher mean with the words, fear God? Let it be clear to us, beloved, the words, Fear God, do not instruct us to be afraid of God in the sense that you'd better obey God's commands, otherwise God will punish you. No, to fear God is actually an instruction to stand in awe of him. Think here about Israel's crossing of the Red Sea. Once God had led Israel through the sea on dry foot to the other side, and then drowned the stubborn Pharaoh and his army in the the Red Sea, we see this response from the people. Thus Israel saw the great work which the Lord had done in Egypt, so the people feared the Lord, Exodus 14. Now, this fear was not a panic or horror, nor was it terror of God. This fear was rather an awe, respect, reverence for God. On the far banks of the Red Sea, the people did not try to hide from God in dread of his presence. On the far banks of that sea, they stood in amazement at the wonderful things that the Lord, in his wisdom, had done for their redemption. This amazement is emphasized in the song which the people sang on the far banks of the Red Sea. I'll sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and its rider has plunged into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Exodus 15, verse 1. I trust it's clear. Fear of God does not mean dread or terror. Here, fear of God is adoration or for a God who could accomplish such wonders. This fear of God, though, can never stand by itself. To stand in awe of such a God, to respect this God highly on account of what he has done, implies automatically that one obeys his commands. To have high thoughts of God, to marvel at his greatness, his power, his mercy, his kindness, to stand in awe of this God on account of his works for us, implies that one has appreciation too. For his instructions. It is certainly a contradiction to fear God on one hand and disregard his commands on the other. So it is that the law God gave to Israel at Mount Sinai, he repeatedly motivated his demand for obedience by reminding Israel that they were to fear him. Consider the words from Leviticus 19. You shall not curse the deaf, nor put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God, 
for I am the Lord. To curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, these are kind of things that you can get away with because the deaf can't hear you curse and the blind can't see you put a block in his path. But the reverence for God and for what God has done for Israel in making them his covenant people was to lead a lifestyle of obedience, of readily doing whatever it is that the Lord wants his people to do, whether or not the blind notice it or not. Fear of God, then, and keeping his commandments are not two separate concepts. Those two belong together, flow one from the other. Together, these two notions describe a lifestyle in which reverence for God is demonstrated by obedience to his commands. In fact, this reverence is demonstrated by obedience that permeates every corner of life. Yes, it determines lifestyle down to the finest details of one's existence. To know oneself to be a sinner, damned under the righteous judgment of holy God, and nevertheless graciously forgiven by this God, In the blood of Christ Jesus, that leads to the deepest awe for God for such wonderful saving work. An awe for God that lays the groundwork of life for a life permeated with hearty thanksgiving on account of his grace in Jesus Christ. Here in truth, a lifestyle that has God in the center of one's complete existence. A lifestyle that readily and cheerfully does what the Lord wishes, down to the smallest details of life. That, says the preacher in our text, is the way each person should live. This is what life is all about. To be honest, it's not new material for us. The word of life has, by the grace of God, been heard in our midst many times. Through the preaching on Sunday and catechism instruction throughout the week, through Bible study at club and scripture reading at home, we've been told so pointedly in the course of the year just what it is that God has done for us sinners. Though so deserving of eternal punishment from holy God on account of our fall into sin, on account also of our daily sins, the Lord nevertheless had deep compassion on the creature he made in the beginning and so was pleased to send his only son to earth with the instruction to atone for our sins. That's the riches of the gospel and it was laid out so pointedly before us again at Christmas. And we know, we've heard it often in the last year, that such grace from God for sinners as us cannot but move the regenerated sinner to awe. What a God that he would do so much for the unworthy. So it was that in the course of the year, we've sung his praises, we've delighted in his goodness, we've marveled that he should do so much for sinners as we are. And that, beloved, is nothing else than what the preacher calls in our text the fear of God. In truth, that where to fear God, fear our God, is not 
at all a new instruction for us. In the course of the year, we've heard so much that was motivation to move us to fear God, to stand in awe of him. And so it was too, time and again, in public preaching and private Bible study, that awe for this God was to move us to lives of grateful obedience to God's commands. God, he is, and that's why we were to do what he in scripture tells us we are to do. So also the matter of keeping his commandments, it's not a new thing for us. In fact, the words of our text sum up the preaching and all the instruction that we've heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. Or for God and also a ready obedience to his commands. Behold, there in a nutshell, all we've been taught about the Lord and his service. The instruction for us now is the same as the conclusion of the preacher way back then. We'll move on to our second point. Why does the preacher come to this conclusion? The question is important simply because the instruction of the year turns out to be the same as was the conclusion of the preacher. How did the preacher come to this conclusion? Focus your attention, brothers and sisters, that the investigation which the preacher had considered in the course of writing the book are not all strange to us. In point of fact, and it's something we need to note, so many of us have performed the same investigations in the past year. In chapter 2, the preacher tells us how he sought to make the most of life. He made up his mind to enjoy life. So he built for himself a big house, houses in fact. He established gardens and orchards around his house. He made a pool. He hired staff to look after his estate. He brought in singers. We could say he installed a state-of-the-art stereo system throughout his house to play the baroque or the country or the jazz or the rock that his fancy desired. He brought in dancers and organised himself numerous concubines. We could say that he watched late-night movies or hired some erotic DVDs or used his internet connection online. He established large herds and flocks, gathered up much gold and silver. We could say he invested in stocks and bonds and purchased another house and bought himself a boat. And really, brothers and sisters, none of this is strange to us. We've tried so much in this, of the same in the course of the past year. No, we probably haven't gone to the same scale as the preacher tried. But throughout the year... We've tried to build up for ourselves a house to be proud of. We've worked to establish gardens and lawns. We've streamed into our ears the music of our taste. We've brought dancers and entertainment, entertainers into our homes. Yes, in our own subtle ways, we've even brought into our lives various concubines. In a nutshell, we've sought, as the preacher did of long ago, to make the most of life to enjoy what there was to enjoy. But the preacher, brothers and sisters, passed an evaluation 
of his efforts years ago. Said he of all he tried to do to enjoy his life to the full, this also is vanity, chapter 2, verse 1. Now that's a judgment we may find disappointing. After all, we've rather enjoyed the good things of this life. Why was it then that the preacher judged his life, full of good things as it was, to be all vanity and grasping for the wind? He judged it to be vanity, beloved, because the wise and the fool, the rich and the poor, all alike must die. Chapter 2, verse 16. Death. That, says the preacher, is the lot of all mankind. Whether princess or street urchin, whether wise or foolish, whether you've enjoyed life or not, all alike must die. And when one dies, it makes no difference whether you're rich or poor, wise or foolish, whether you had enjoyed life or not. For at death, all things fall into a big hole. And all that's left is that you stand before your maker with empty hands. Death the preacher knows, is the great equaliser. At death, kings and paupers, the educated and the feeble-minded, the wise and the foolish, all stand equally before their one creator, and none has an advantage over the other. So that's why the preacher says there's no real gain in building up big houses, gathering many riches, enjoying many women, listening to all kinds of music. Yes, to the human flesh, these things may be attractive for a while, but in the long term, when death comes to take you and you must stand before your maker, all this enjoyment helps not an ounce. It's all vanity and grasping for wind. So too, beloved that the preacher writes off squabbling and bickering and pursuing one's own rights as so much vanity and a pursuit of wind. One can stew on why I was sacked and he promoted, why I'm married and another single, why I had this experience in my youth and another had that. And one can be so busy with the things in this life the preacher knows all this sorrow and sickness and anger, chapter 5, verse 17, is vanity. It's all striving after wind, senseless effort, for death comes to one and all, and on that day all these concerns that now obsess the mind fall into a big empty hole. Yet, stew on so many wrongs of the past, pursuing our own rights, it's something we've all done in the past year again. We mightn't like to hear it from the preacher, his evaluation of the sense of the stewing and pursuit of perceived rights, but we do well to hear it. Being angry because of what happened in the past, holding grudges and resentments, seeking answers, is a grasping for the wind, all vanity. For death comes to one and all, and then all that energy and effort trying to right the wrongs done to us in the past 
help us nothing anymore. For with death we stand empty before the judgment seat of God. So what is it all that it amounts to then? Chapter 12, verse 8. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. This is the theme of the book. This life by itself, spiced up with pleasures and wealth, as you will, has no sense. All this, all is vanity. See the evaluation of the preacher on all that we try to accomplish in this life. And lest anyone, beloved, is tempted to say that a preacher could be wrong, that our efforts of the past year, or years for that matter, prove a different result, let it be known that the preacher was moved by God himself to utter this judgment on life as it meets the eye. In the words of verse 10, what was written was upright, words of truth. Pursuing wealth, pursuing pleasure, pursuing answers, God himself moved the preacher of Ecclesiastes to judge it all vanity and grasping for the wind. And so it is, beloved, that we can also understand the reason why the preacher comes with this instruction of our text. If life, as it meets the eye, is inherently futile, if amassing wealth and pursuing pleasure and having fun is ultimately all vanity because all must die and stand before the judgment of God, then the conclusion of the whole thing is rather obvious. Fear God and keep his commandments. For to fear God and keep his commandments in this life makes one able to stand before God in the judgment at death. To stand in awe of God in this life, to marvel at his saving grace in Jesus Christ and also gladly keep his instructions day by day, that prepares one well for the day of death. This adoration of God today enables one to stand in the judgment tomorrow and to be welcomed into God's kingdom and glory. Now, we can come back to ourselves in this life as we live it this year. The sum of the preacher's instruction was the need to fear God and keep his commandments. Live that godly lifestyle. Sorry. (coughs) Sorry. The sum of the preacher's instruction was the need to fear God and keep his commandments to live that godly lifestyle that flows from the adoration of God's saving work. The sum of the year past has been the same. In the preaching and at club, in our conversations at home, in our lessons at school, it's been driven home to us that all for God and keeping his commandments was so necessary that this is what life is all about. But at the end of the day, beloved, we also... We need to realize also that the Lord was pleased to drive home to us the truth of our text in the events that have confronted us in the last year. 
church discipline had to be exercised for the benefit of Verius last year. Why? Because these brothers and sisters did not wish to believe the inspired instruction of the preacher. These members thought to enjoy this life for what it was. They saw no need to fear God and keep his commands, commandments in their concrete circumstances. These members, unless they repent, cannot stand in the judgment. They shall experience to their own eternal hurt, unless God yet works repentance. That life lived for itself was indeed vain, a grasping for the wind. Herein, we were taught not to go and do likewise. Herein, we are taught just how vain life lived for yourself really is. In the course of the year, death has taken many from our congregation and country. And some of us come within a whisker of death through accident and health problems. The preacher would have us know, as the Bible also says elsewhere, that all the pleasures the dead had in life, all that they decided to enjoy and to do, helped those who died not a thing once they had to be foot once they had to appear before the throne of their maker. At death, whatever they possessed, they could not take with them, and they had to appear empty handed before the Lord, and God justly brought into judgment everything they ever did, be it good or evil. What made the deceased to stand or fall before that judgment seat was the matter of whether they had feared God, were filled with the awe for him on account of his saving work in Jesus Christ, an awe that in in turn determined the way that they lived. For such fear of God is part and parcel of true faith. It was the Lord who confronted us as a congregation with physical death and spiritual death, with coffins and church discipline. In so doing, the Lord confronted us in this past year with the lesson the preacher also learned Concentrating on developing this earthly life for the sake of earthly life makes no sense. It is vanity and grasping for wind. God himself reached into our lives to teach us in no uncertain terms that this life is not what it's all about. Life instead is about God, fearing him, praising him and living for him. Now, why, brothers and sisters, has the Lord given this pointed instruction to us this year? Why have we a need for it? For this reason, beloved, our God would have each of us learn more and more the lesson of our text, confronted as we are with the word of God in the preaching and with the deeds of God in discipline and the deaths that come our way this year, to mention now only these, we are compelled to learn and to acknowledge that life is more than music and pleasure, more than courting and eating, more than houses and money. The very fact that in the course of the year we have pursued money and houses, eating and courting, pleasure and music, has made it necessary that we learn the lesson of our text anew, 
sin has remained in us so much in the past year that we needed to be told in no uncertain terms through word and deed that we're on life, that we're on earth, not for ourselves, but rather to adore God and so keep his commandments. The fact that God would impress this lesson on us again through the preaching of his word and in the deeds he has done in our midst is not a cause for us to despair. In his concern for the church of all ages, the Lord moved the preacher to investigate life and come with his inspired conclusion and include this book in the Bible. In his concern for us today, the Lord our God sees to it that we, sinful as we remain, learn the lessons of of Ecclesiastes. Here is not a cause for despair. Here is rather a reason for deep gratitude. His mercy on us is so unending. So it is, beloved, that we, as we farewell one year and stand at the threshold of another, may be thankful for a year just past, despite all the difficulties that the Father in his wisdom has sent our way. And at the same time, we may greet a new year with eagerness, determined again to live this year fully to his praise and glory, convinced also that the God who showed great care for us in 2015 will show equally great care for us in 2016. Amen.